0: Hear the word of the Lord in Isaiah 2:12 through 17. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Isaiah chapter 2. We'll be jumping around a little bit in the word today. So it'd be good to have handy. Uh, Welcome. My name is Charles Jones. Uh, My wife and I, Manon, have been going to Redemption Peoria since a little bit before the start. And we're super grateful to be a part of this church. And I'm uh, honored to be able to be up here today in front of you to um, hopefully bring God a ton of glory and myself none. And uh, just encourage you with the word. So let's pray, if you don't mind. Father, thank you for your grace. We just sang, Lord, about how you have saved us, those who are in Christ. You've given life to us when we were dead. And Jesus, it's all because of you that we can come to the Father. Because you are the blameless one who took our sin and you give us your righteousness. So, We who were dead can now be alive, and we can give you glory, Lord, and we praise you for that. Spirit, would you please move in me to proclaim your goodness and your excellency, Lord, and would you move in all of us in this room so we can know you, Lord? I pray for those in this room that don't know you, Jesus. Spirit, move in their hearts to save them so they can know freedom for the first time. We pray for all who in this room know you, Jesus, And man, we just always run back to other stuff besides you. So strengthen us in your word and let us walk in you. We ask that you be glorified above all things, Father. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew 16, we see an interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and it's probably familiar to many of you. Jesus and his disciples came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that, this, or what, what do people say about the Son of Man? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples responded to Jesus and say, said that some people say that the Son of Man is John the Baptist. Others say it's Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus focuses the lens in on his disciples and he asks them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, always being the spokesperson for the disciples, immediately answers, and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, and he says, blessed are you, Simon, Peter, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, hear this, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now we've been looking over the last four weeks, this being week five, back through history about 500 years and seeing a microcosm of what Jesus says here. We see two things when we look at history from the moment Jesus said this to today. We see that Jesus is building his church And we see that the gates of hell are really, really trying to prevail against it. We constantly see those two things, that Jesus is building his church, and the enemy is constantly trying to take it down. And yet, Jesus continues to build his church. And as we've looked back through these five solas, specifically into the 1500s, I know some of you could care less about history, and that's okay, You don't have to be a history buff to to track here. As you look back into the 1500s, at kind of the powder keg explosion of what we now call the Protestant Reformation, we see these things. We see that the church, uh, the Catholic church, with Catholic is just a synonym for universal, which Catholic church, at the time the church, was filled with the enemy's agenda. Corruption and greed and power, Oppression were all the main goals of many in the church, especially many in power throughout this era. And so we see that Jesus promises to build his church, and he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet we can look at the Catholic church, the church in the 1500s, and we can see that the enemy is actually using the church to go against Jesus building his church, which is just crazy. We see that Leo X, who is the pope at this time, is widely considered like one of the most corrupt popes in all of history by believers and non-believers. It's not a Protestant thing. Uh, He loved opulence, and he made sure that the church was all about it. And so as we talked about the last four weeks, we see that indulgences came up. We see purgatory come onto the scene theologically. And what the church was saying to the people was, Your aunt who passed away, she's not in heaven, but she's also not in hell. She's in this in-between place of waiting called purgatory, which, by the way, is not in the Bible. And in order to get her out of purgatory, you can do these things, you can say these prayers, but you can definitely give us money. And we'll either get you a sheet of paper saying, hey, your sins are forgiven, so you're good. Or, hey, she's good. So your loved ones who have passed on, just to make sure that you know they're in heaven. Which is wickedness. It's evil, it's sinful, and yet the church was the the body doing this. And the reason that these indulgences were sold wasn't just to steer people away from Jesus, it was to bring in uh, revenue. Legitimately, St. Peter's Basilica, which is the largest church in the world now, the church in the Vatican, was beautified and built through this fundraiser. It was essentially a building fund. And so for centuries, people were led astray by the church so that the church could get glory and not God. And so in this darkness, we've been focusing in on one individual by the name of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther was one of many reformers, but he's the one we look at the most, I would say, at this time because he essentially took on the powers that be so that people could know Jesus. Now, Martin Luther was just a German priest, a Catholic priest. He wasn't a Lutheran. I guess he was, because his name was Luther. But he was a Catholic priest who was in the Catholic Church, and he was reading his Bible and started to study the Bible. And he saw what God called for in his word, and he saw what the gospel was. And then he contrasted that with what he saw and believed in the church, and he called for reform. Reformation, the Reformation. They didn't want to split from the church. They wanted to bring the church back to the Bible. And so Martin Luther comes, goes from this essentially anonymous German priest, just like many of us in this room. No one will know our name worldwide, now or when we die. And that was Martin Luther. And then he goes from that, basically anonymousness, and he takes on essentially head-to-head the Pope probably the most powerful person in the world at that point. And it's all so that corruption can end and the glory of God can be proclaimed and Jesus can be known by the people. Chuck Grote says, But Luther was by no means the only light of the Reformation. He embodied the feeling of many that the Roman Catholic Church had strayed far from the original message of Scripture. Luther and the other reformers called for change within the church Their point and purpose was not to split, to break away, or to start a new movement. It was always to reform what already existed in the Roman Catholic Church. He goes on to say, But it soon became clear that the church would not cooperate. Not all within the hierarchy of the church opposed reformation, but the ones that really counted did. Putting God's word back into the hands of the laymen, the common people, committing to justification by grace alone, and affirming the centrality of God's glory hear this, would take away from the very things they were attempting to achieve, the church's glory. Bigger buildings, beautiful cathedrals, the kind of places we like to visit on tours of Europe today. The church had fallen victim to the age-old sins of pride, greed, empire building, and human glory. All things that would rob God of the glory he deserved and desired, and rob man of the opportunity to trust fully in God's goodness and grace. Now, you might, in 2018, in our context, be asking, why don't people just read their Bibles? Right? That's a normal question and a good question, except the answer is that many couldn't. The Bible generally was produced in Latin. A lot of times the only copy in your town would be at the church, probably chained to the pulpit so no one could steal it. If you knew Latin, you'd have to go there to read it. You probably didn't know Latin, and the Bible at this point hadn't been translated into most of the normal dialects that we would know now as English, German, things like that. And when people, reformers, did translate them into the common language, they were punished by the church. So when you, in the 1500s, wanted to hear what God was saying, you would go to church and you would hear what the priest was saying. And so it took men like Martin Luther, who could read the Bible, to bring truth to The masses. And so, in this context, we see the foundation laid for what we've been going through, what we call the five solas. And again, sola is Latin for alone or only. And we've walked through first week sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the authority, not the church, creeds, confessions, or councils. Sola gratia, salvation is a gift of God's grace alone and not by our efforts. Sola fide, that Salvation is received by faith alone, not our good works. Last week we talked about Solus Christus, that Jesus Christ alone has obtained the salvation for all who believe in him through his death and his resurrection. And today, the last week of the series, the fifth sola, we're going to talk about Soli Deo Gloria, which some of you have maybe heard before. To God alone be the glory. So that everything would be to the glory of God, David Van Drunen said that this sola to God alone be the glory is the tie that binds all the other solas together. De Grote says that every other doctrine and every other slogan falls under this truth, and we see in the Westminster Catechism that they say that the chief end, the goal of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This was not a new idea in the 1500s. It's obviously not a new idea now. If you would, take a look at Isaiah chapter 2. So as we've walked through just for a few minutes the context of the Reformation and kind of our roots, we are looking back about 500 years, 501 years to be exact, and, a, and about a month um, since Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of uh, the church. We're going to go back another about 1,800 years to Isaiah and his time. Now, we've already read this. We're going to read it again a few times because, man, like we're at church and we need to know the word of God. It says in verse 12 of chapter 2. Again, this is Isaiah talking, uh, God talking through Isaiah to his people. It says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. Verse 17, it says, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Now, we just walked through the context of the Reformation. We kind of need to switch the lens to uh, about 700 BC from 1500 AD and figure out what's the context of this passage. If you've read through Isaiah, you'll see a constant theme of God calling his people back to himself, promising that he will preserve a remnant of them for redemption. And yet, they consistently don't return to him. They consistently put their trust, their faith, their strength, protection, everything that we should be finding in God, they put that in other nations, other things, other gods, with a small g. And yet God continually calls them, and he says, I want you, I love you, though your sins are like scarlet, right? Chapter 1, I will wash you white as snow. So he's calling them in love, and part of that love ends up looking like judgment. And we see in this passage, it says, For the Lord of hosts, now we're going to pause there. Lord, if you look in your Bible, is capitalized, all four letters. And if you've been in church, you probably know this. But that is the translation of God's personal name, Yahweh, I Am. Now that might not matter much to you today, but it matters a ton to the hearers of this word from Isaiah. Because in that time, the Israelites had their God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, but then they also had all these other little gods from other nations who all had names, and statues and were for specific things. And so God is saying, for Yahweh has a day, Israel's God, the God, has a day. And he says this you'll see this word over and over and over again against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. And then he goes into specifics. In verse 13, he says, Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. Now, the cedars of Lebanon, we can see throughout Isaiah, throughout the Psalms, and kind of throughout the Old Testament, are this symbol of strength, prosperity, and kind of everlastingness. They're huge, they're strong, and people see them as essentially immovable. And God is saying, those are gone. Those are gone. Those things that you think are the greatest They're gone, because I'm greater. In verse 14, he's like, oh, the trees? You think that's a big deal? I'm going to take out every lofty mountain and every uplifted hill. And so in verses 13 and 14, God is saying, I have a day against everything that's lifted up. Anything that anyone could put their faith in besides me, I'm taken down. Whether it's created by me, trees and mountains and hills, or in these next few verses, created by man. In verse 15, it says, Against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. Now you might notice a theme, right? We hear throughout the word that God is described as these things, right? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. And Jesus or God is saying, I'm going to take out the, the mountains, the hills, the trees. Oh, and then anything you build, any man-made things, they're going down too. Anything you could put your comfort in, your security in, besides me, it's gone. And then he zooms in even more, and he says, verse 17, And the haughtiness of man, or the pride of man, will be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And so God is saying, anything that's against me, whether mountains or trees or smaller, uh, walls and forts and towers, and even more specifically, your heart, your own pride, I'm against all of it. And then the point of this passage, he says, and the Lord, again Yahweh, God, the only God, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So we see in this passage that God is very, very, very serious about God. And he takes idolatry, us putting glory in everything else, very seriously. You can see in this passage, we have mountains and hills, we have trees, we have towers and fortified walls, and our own reason, all things that we put our faith and trust in instead of him. And God is saying to Isaiah, through Isaiah to his people, that there will be a day and it will not be good for you. But it's because I'm going to get the glory, and none of those other things. Now we see throughout Scripture that this is a theme, right, from Genesis one to the end of Revelation. In Isaiah 42:8, God says, "I am the Lord; that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." So God Himself is saying, "To God alone be the glory." Now, this matters in the, co- the case of the Reformation because there are institutions trying to take God's glory. This matters in the case of Israel with Isaiah because there are institutions and things trying to take God's glory. And people willingly want to give glory to other things beside God. Now, thankfully, we're enlightened enough that we're beyond this. Thank you. It says in Isaiah 6, 1-8, just to see what God says about his glory, Isaiah gets a glimpse of heaven and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his, like the, the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these heavenly beings. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, these angelic beings, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we're not going to read it all, but you should John gets this glimpse of heaven, and he doesn't see his uncle playing golf with his buddies in the afterlife. He sees Jesus on the throne getting worshipped forever. And it starts with this glimpse of these four other angelic creatures saying, worthy are you to receive blessing and honor and power and glory forever and ever and ever. Holy, holy, holy are you. And like a chapter later, it goes from these four angels to to every single thing that's ever been created. It says, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everything that is in them praises God forever. So if you want to know what heaven looks like, that's what it looks like. It's all about God and his glory. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, which we'll jump into a little deeper here in a minute, talking about Jesus, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Listen. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everything, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So if there's anything we can take away from these passages, it's that God will be glorified. He's being glorified. He will be glorified forever. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, not the knees of those who believe in him. It says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, which means you're either with him and you're willingly bending the knee and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, or the conquering king has come in, and he's telling you to bend the knee. And he's telling you that he's Lord. Now that might like ruffle feathers in 2018, but this is the God that we see in the Bible. And this is the God that they saw in the Reformation, and they took it seriously what was happening around them. And we want to do the same. And so you might be saying to yourself, all right, I grew up in church. I know that God is glorious. That's like Christianity 101. Or you might be coming in and be like, this dude is really passionate about God's glory, and I'm terrified of God. Or you might be in the middle, probably like me, where you're like, I've grown up in church, and God's glory is terrifying because I recognize my own sin, and there's no way I can ever get there. So you might be asking the question, great, God is glorious. That's like way up there, and I'm down here, so what does that mean for me? There's good news and kind of bad news too. We'll start with the bad news. The bad news is just as the Israelites sought after all kinds of other idols, and just as the church in the middle of the second millennium sought after all kinds of other idols, you and I, right now, find our identity and seat of glory in essentially everything but Jesus. I'll give you three seconds to think through all the things that steal God's glory in your heart. Three. Good job. That probably wasn't the hardest exercise you've ever done, right? Everything good or bad that pulls us away from God is trying to steal his glory. So that's the bad part, that our our hearts are filled with this desire to do everything that's not God and to pursue everything that's not God. And the good news is this. You were created to give God glory. You were created to worship him. Paul in Acts seventeen twenty eight in Athens, he says that in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. We just sang the first song. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you. Like the only reason you're here is because God has chosen to hold the universe together, let alone keep your heart beating. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, familiar to many, it says that God has put eternity into man's heart. In Genesis 1, we see the creation story. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.31, and we see a similar command in Colossians 3 a few times. God says, whether you eat or drink mundane things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. For the glory of God. So, the bad news is that we always want to give glory to everything else. The good news is that we were created to give God glory. Two truths here God is getting the glory, He will get the glory no matter what. The other one is that you are going to give something or someone glory no matter what. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, You might never talk about glory, and yet your life points to the fact that you're trying to make something bigger than you. Whether it's your success, or your family, or your career, or yourself, we are all putting glory in something. Ken Sand says, what are you really living for? It's crucial to realize that you either glorify God or you glorify someone else. You're always making something look big. It's just a fact. And so it's almost like we have these two lines, and it's God's holiness and the fact that God will get the glory, and then it's us down here saying, we are giving glory to something, and it seems like they're never going to intersect. So that's the next question is, okay, I know that God is glorious. I know that I'm created to give him glory alone, not to anything else. How do I accomplish that? Man, because I'm looking at myself and thinking, I'm giving glory to all these other things besides God. And I'm reading this passage in Isaiah, and I'm freaked out. Well, there's good news. God alone, God alone gets the glory in our lives when we look to Jesus. Right? Like Sunday school answer number one. How do we give God glory? Jesus. And here's why. Jesus is the only person to ever walk the earth who really carried out 1 Corinthians 10.31 all the way. He ate, he drank, everything he did, he did it for the glory of God. He's the only one who carried out the fact that you can love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbors, yourself. He's the only one to ever walk the earth who did these things perfectly. And so we can look to him in our f- uh, foolishness, and our faultiness, and see that Jesus wasn't foolish, that Jesus never gave glory to anything besides God. If you would, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we touched on it here a minute ago. We want to answer the question, how do I glorify God alone? If scripture alone is the only authority, I've been saved by grace through faith alone. Christ's work alone is the only thing that that accomplishes that salvation. So how do I give glory to God and nothing else? And the answer is we look to Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Paul is writing to the Philippians and he says this. Again, Philippians 2 verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? To the glory of God the Father. God alone demands glory. God alone will get glory. That's a terrifying truth if there's no solution. A terrifying truth, especially on the heels of the last four weeks where we learned that our own merit can't get us to God, but only Jesus. And so when Jesus comes into the picture, it's no longer a terrifying truth. It's a life-giving truth. Because Jesus humbled himself and took on our flesh, we can be humbled to take on his perfect flesh. And when we walk in him, when we, some of you guys aren't believers in here, when you realize and recognize that you are a sinner and that God is perfect, that he loves you, and he's made a way through Jesus, and when you say, God, I am a sinner, I need you to save me, Jesus comes in and he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness, his rightness, his perfection, his holiness. And so if God alone demands the glory and our hearts want to give glory to everything else, or maybe even God plus everything else, the only way that we, as people of God, can give him the glory is through the finished work of Jesus Christ and living for him. One way we can do this is we have to know our Bibles. It says in John 1 that Jesus is the word of God. And so we read this quote yesterday and it blew my mind. When we read the word of God, like God works in us, he creates in us a new thing. He continues to create things in us because he's making us to know him more and making us to look more like him. God is glorious and God is our creator. So if we walk in God through Christ, we can actually live as the creator created us to be. Right? We, we talked, uh, myself and some of the staff talked a few weeks ago about uh, this video And you can Google it later. This guy's sweatshirt is like twelve feet up, hanging on a pipe. And uh, somebody else brings him a ladder. And instead of setting the ladder up, walking up the ladder, grabbing his sweatshirt, and leaving, he tries to use the ladder as like a pole, and try to get his sweatshirt off off the pole. And he has to take he like sets the ladder. (laughs) He like takes a break because it's so exhausting. And it's ridiculous because anybody watching that goes, dude, you have a ladder. Use the ladder the way the ladder was created to be used. And God is saying the same thing. He's created us to glorify him. And when we don't worship him, when we don't glorify him, when we seek other things beside him, we're the guy using the ladder the wrong way. We're the ladder being used the wrong way. And so God is our creator. He has created created us to worship him, and so we have freedom to know that we can glorify him because that's how he wired us. We can be a willing party to his glory because he's going to get it no matter what. A second hope for you is that if God is the one who gets the glory alone, you don't have to worry about getting all the glory. Right? We live in just this crazy time And I feel like it's like ancient Rome. That's where we are right now. Assuming, like, Lord willing, a thousand years from now, people look back on the United States, they'll see that they were the greatest empire and the nation and most powerful, and they had everything they could ever want, and yet no one was happy. We're a culture that longs for happiness. I saw a guy looked up to leave his wife, and people comment and say, Hey, man, I'm sad that happened, but I'm glad you're happy. We live in a culture that magnifies and idolizes happiness. And yet, guess what? No one's happy. Because that's our only goal. And yet we're all just dying on the inside. Because we're trying to make it all about us. Because if I can be fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. And God says, listen, I get the glory, not you. Rest. Walk in Jesus. Rest in me. Stop struggling. And just walk with me. And so the good news about God alone getting the glory is that you don't have to worry about getting any glory. So perfectionism and anxiety and all those things, that we can leave. Another thing is this. We saw in Isaiah, we see in the 1500s, we see now that we have God who is ultimately good, who desires us. And we have all these idols who are ultimately bad and they desire us. When we put our faith and trust and hope in these idols, whatever they may be, right? We, we hear idol and we think of Israel and we think these carved images. But whether it's fantasy football or sex or anything in between, when we put our hope in those things, they promise, they try to promise what God promises, and yet they always leave us emptier than the time before. Right? Like, you guys have sinned. That that shouldn't be new news. It's like you have a strainer under the faucet and you're trying to constantly fill it and it's just continually emptying everything out. That's what sin is in our hearts. And so if God is ultimately good and idols, everything that's trying to pull us from God are ultimately bad, we can rest in the fact that when we walk in God, he'll get the glory and also he'll fulfill our joy because we finally get to walk in a way that we're wired. God alone is worthy of all glory. And if you're anything like me, you struggle with that fact because we want to always put glory in other little things. And yet at the end of everything, God is the one who's going to be getting all the praise. God gives us his son, Jesus, who fully glorified God alone while he was on earth so that we can know God. He gives us Jesus so we can know God and we can glorify God in all that we do. Whether you're a nursing mother or a CEO of a huge company and everything in between, you can glorify God. Cutting the grass, accounting, whatever it is, because you're in Christ. He's gracious in doing this. He's gracious in, one, taking all the glory because he's the only one that's worthy of it, but he's also gracious in allowing us a way to actually give him the glory through his son so may we as believers be encouraged that with scripture alone as authority we can know that salvation is not by our works but it's a gift of god's of god's grace alone received by faith alone through jesus christ alone all for the glory of god alone let's pray God, you're good. It just blows my mind that you get all the glory because we can't see heaven. We long so bad for you, for seeing you. We long so bad to give you the glory in all that we do, and yet we fall so short. It's a terrifying truth that you will get glory no matter what. And yet it's the most refreshing and life-giving truth that you give us your Son, so that we can finally walk in freedom and give glory to you alone. And it's not an abstract thing, but we can walk in you and love you and live for you in everything, Jesus. Lord, I pray for those in this room that don't know you, God, that they would please come to know you. And maybe it's scary to think about your glory, that you'll get it, and they're giving glory to other things. Lord, I pray that those in this room that don't know you would be encouraged by the fact, Jesus, that you've made a way, and that if we put our faith and trust in you, We can glorify you alone. Help us, Lord, as believers. God, we we put our faith and trust in everything else besides you. And you've called us to do the opposite. So Spirit, work in us to glorify you as we take care of our kids and love our spouses and live in our singleness well and go to class and cut the grass, Lord. How we interact with others, with you, with ourselves. May it all be for your glory. We ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.